This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Shane Jensen beaming to my right, Audie Weiner, just in from his bike. Straight away, and Eric Bradlow diligently preparing his notes and thoughts for the day. To my left, good morning, gentlemen. How's it going? Good morning. Going well, going well. Going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You guys can join us. Please join us. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 7866 Email us, businessradio at com, Or give us a shout on Twitter. Our handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We take questions, observations, suggestions. Guys, we're back into over-under Time of the year, I think we might need to start our over-under segment. So we're always open for suggestions from our Twitter followers about over-under. All right, guys, we have a normal setup today. We have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. We have open lines in this first segment and in the last segment. I'm pretty sure I know what's on your mind, but I'm curious. I'm curious what caught your eye this past week in the world of sports. Well, I don't, I'm going to jump in because okay. Shane is chewing on this, and we got it. No, we gotta, no, we gotta, I, mean, I mean, he's so happy. It, I, I mean, mean, I guess we know what we're going to talk about for at least the next hour. Indeed, or so. I wanted to, to pose a question to you guys, which I posed to my seminar yesterday, which is: Is there something we missed that we could have foreseen about the game itself? I think, in, in, retro, in retrospect, a lot of there were a lot of surprises before I mean, the game. Before, it was there something that, that we there was that we, without hindsight. Obviously, in hindsight, everything looks crystal clear. But is there anything that we did wrong if we look back at the data that was well, available to us at the time? So let me just say a couple of things. The 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 favorite won, at least if you go by the betting favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a massive, you know, overestimate of the amount of scoring, and in fact, it was a record ma- massive a- a- overestimate. I think uh, what is the number forty was the number of points below the over under. That's correct. It which was fifty six, which, which was a which is a record. Yep. So one would argue that the outcome was right in, in some sense, although the models the 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 high tech models were saying the the Rams were maybe slightly favored, but the scoring models were just you know record off. So, so comments. Just let me just add. Of course, it comes on the heels of last year's Super Bowl, yeah. which was the Recency, paradigm yeah. of you know current offense taking over the league, and so it's also that stark change from last year. So, no, I mean, I, 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 my my first answer is no, not really. Um, I, I don't think we could have. I mean, there's just a lot of chance to games and outcomes. I mean, what the big difference Wait, from this year? Are you versus not revising your 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 estimates of the teams now? I mean, no, you're not. No, well, uh, other than Jared Goff may be not so great. Not in the big so games. Well, that's a revision. So, so, sure, or maybe, but I mean, no, that's, you, not well, a, that's not. That's not. Would you say that that's he's a not completely so retrospective evaluation? That's not. I don't even think there's much prospective value to that. Yes, yeah, so okay, I mean, that's I, an interesting. You don't think there's so I, I'm no. actually revising my whole uh, my whole estimate of Jared Goff. Oh, feel free to overhaul just, it all based on one game. No, yeah. no. I mean, I'm, I think. Well, first of all, I'm, I, if you look at this, is what I look at the data. We we did see if you look in the last. Uh, I mean, from the beginning of the year, there was a decline, and the real question is: was that decline something that's that's 
who is the true Jared Goff? The Jared Goff we saw in the beginning of the year or the Jared Goff we saw in the middle of the year? And, and yeah. after the Super Bowl, I th- I'm much more comfortable saying that the true Jared Goff is the I'm not is even middle, comfortable Jared. saying that. I, yeah. I, the true Jared Goff is maybe the one that has Cup as his receiver and the one that has a healthy girly. Yeah, so I, so, I mean... Let me kind of you know, weigh in it, here as someone that was... So I actually don't think... I think the game went somewhat as expected, and let me say why. I think we talked about this the last couple of weeks on the show. I think when we looked at... It's not momentum. Both teams had momentum, if you'd like. If you even want to call it that. They it was both non- won their yeah. previous couple games. Right. <laughs> right. And there was non-stationary. <laughs> get there. Right. Yeah, there, there a shocking non- turn of right. events. There was non-stationarity. <laughs> yeah. So we saw that the second half of the season... The Patriots, I mean, Cade showed us the data when we were sitting in Atlanta. The second half of the season, by most metrics, the Patriots were the better team than the Rams. The Rams did not have a great second half of the season. And actually, Adi, I don't know if you broke it down, but if you look at Jared Goff's numbers against the top 10 defenses in the league, and by the way, Patriots all season were a top 10 defense. Their points allowed, their yardage given up, etc. He actually, his... uh, QBR is like 25 points lower. Now, everybody's is lower, but his is extraordinarily lower. So here's what I would update about Jared Goff. I would say, can Jared Goff play the, you know, I don't know, pick your average, the Cleveland Browns, oh, they have a mid-level defense. Can Can he play the New York Giants and score 30 points, 35 points? Yes. But to score against an elite defense takes a totally different set of skills. And I'm not convinced that he has those set of skills without I, without a great running game. I, I, right, and I think he does. True, yeah, I don't think he can ma- necessarily manufacture he an amazing manufa- game correct. against a great defense. There's a very few number of quarterbacks, I think, that correct. can do that. Um, but, I mean, he certainly, I mean, even, again, I mean, he, he, he actually had a great, pretty great game against Dallas during the playoffs, right? And that's a fan. I mean, that's a fantastic defense. Everyone raved defense. about that defense before. You well, know? Let, me, let me ask you a question, Shane. I, I noticed something during the game, and I was wondering, you know, and we also, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, we got lots of stats about how the Brady-Belichick team, even when Brady doesn't have a great game, the winning percentage of the team is yeah. much greater than the average. Like, they, yeah. Brady didn't throw a touchdown. I understand he only had one interception. He had more interceptions and touchdowns. This is the thing I'm crediting Bill Belichick for again. Do you think it's possible, I'm just asking you a question, where on that first drive of the game, where Brady threw, we both agree, it was a bad pass, it was a and it was intercepted. Oof. So maybe, I'm just asking you, is this showing the greatness of Belichick? He's saying to himself, look, maybe I don't have the A-plus Brady today. I'm looking at Gronk. The guy can barely run. He's not beating cornerbacks today. Maybe he can beat linebackers, whatever it is. I don't have the A-plus Gronk. I don't have the A-plus Brady. You know what? We're going to do running, defense. We're going to keep this game tight. I'm thinking Belichick may have changed his game plan halfway through that first quarter and said, you know what? This is going to be a defensive battle. I see what I've got today, and it's not the Brady of last year's Super Bowl, who was the greatest quarterback in the history of the Super Bowl. Do you think there's any chance he yeah. made that evaluation? Uh, or, or, I mean, I'm you not don't even... You so? Why, why are you screaming? Why, why, why can't he make an evaluation of at course the time he can, of the but, game? But he can't just say, I'm going to turn off my offense because it's going to be a low-scoring no, defense. No, no, no. You try to he score take less risk. Less risk. He did not... Brady didn't try to throw the ball down the field. All the passes were within 15 yards of the line he of scrimmage. He took a couple shots down the field, but I, I mean, I agree. I, I, Very I th- few. I think it's more that I think he, you know, the essence of the kind of this way, whatever you want to call it, is is to have a you know kind of a, I think more sort of um, 
possibilities in your playbook. More, you know, that you, yeah, I guess if you feel out the game, you know, and maybe this is why the Patriots never score in the first quarter. I don't know. But, like, you, you know, you, you, you sort of feel out the game and then you kind of chew. You, you have a, a multitude so, of different choices for agree. game plan going forward. That, that I, I believe it. That, I'm skeptical that he you know. saw something in Brady that surprised him. No, no, that, that, I, that I'm not, you know, I don't even think. I mean, Brady certainly did not have an amazing game and he was not forced to carry that particular game or really light it up he, in the second half at all, right? pretty well on that, but, on that, but that one drive. He I mean, had a great touchdown drive. And, uh, you know, his numbers, though not stunning by Brady's standards, I mean, I, mean, why, I don't think he necessarily <clears throat> played poorly, whereas Goff did play poorly. And I think that's all, the biggest difference of all compared to last year is Foles had a great game and Goff didn't. Let's recognize that we are falling prey to the thing that we criticize others for. We've just made this Goff versus Brady. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me the probably the bigger story is the defense on both sides. Yeah. I mean, the Rams played a great defensive game. Yeah, no, Wade Phillips all is is fanta- a fantastic defensive coordinator. And, uh, he and, always has been, and and in particular when his teams go up against Brady, and he's one of the few guys I think has kind of figured Brady out. So, right? Kate, while I agree with you, let's go back to what we discussed last week. It appeared to me that they both teams played great defense. It did appear to me that. But how do we know? Maybe both teams just played bad offense. <laughs> like, how do yeah. we know yep. that the actual Rams defense was any good? Maybe, look... They didn't look great covering Edelman. I mean, Edelman looked open on every single play. And, you know, it's not like he was making... If you look at the catches he made, to give him credit, most of them, he was open. So Wide open. Wide open. So, again, I'm going back to how do we know... By the way, I do think both teams played great defense. But how do we know that it just wasn't bad offense on both teams? Yeah, I mean, I I guess how you would actually even try and get at that. I'm not sure it's an answerable question, but I suppose you could... You'd have to kind of go play by play and just sort of look at how players were executing actual well, there's stuff. A couple, right? There's a couple of things that the, that the that the people are trying to do who track. So, for example, you can track, and I saw this on five thirty eight. You can count how many how strong the defense is aligned against you, and that predicts how many yards you expect to get. Uh, and then you can see, like for example, how many yards you did get, and you can look you at mean those on any given play and so, yeah, the like formation. How many are in the box? The right. and so, everything. so if there's eight in the box, you expect uh, quite a few yards fewer mm-hmm. than there's six in the box, and you can kind of that sort of checks the lineup and so in other words the good defenses predicts a, yeah, the right right strategy this is just one way right you can also look at the distance using the the, the you know the stat data the the tracking data how far the the cornerbacks are from the receivers and see, did they give them any space yeah. and i think that i think that the, that the rams got no space well so, no i mean no, I, I, defense, again right? i think we're very much retrospectively creating a narrative Somehow, well, I was actually offering some data to look at which we don't have okay but but but, but, <laughs> but your statement that somehow the rams receivers weren't even getting space. Well, that was I mean, someone reported Brandon that, that, Cooks was wide open in the end zone. Absolutely. Wide open. All Goff had to do is throw the ball to him a Two little seconds bit earlier, earlier no, right. and the, 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 the entire game changes. changes. Yeah. And and mean, you know, I mean, obviously the defensive player for the Patriots made an incredible kind of play at the end of that to look, knock it look, out, the but two, I mean, the two the three plays, the only yeah. three opportunities if you'd like that the Rams really had. That was one play. Second was arguably the guy in the end zone. I think I don't think it was Cooks, maybe it was Woods. I mean, he could have caught that touchdown pass. He the could've. ball was in his hands. And the third was again, it was a, I actually in replay, it was clear call. Three three game in the fourth quarter. The Rams are driving, get a seventeen yard run, and it's a holding penalty, which ends that drive. Yeah, and that was a if pretty Rams, questionable holding penalty. It was question, if the, if the Rams that. go down and score on that drive, 
then, as Shane said, it's a totally different ball game. Yeah. But the good news is, from my point of view, since as you know, I hate the Patriots. <laughs> I think the better team won the game. The better team won the game. But if you're asking me, could the Rams have won that game? <clears throat> Absolutely, they could have won that game. That well, that's yeah. always the case. I no, mean, no, no. A lot it's of, not always the case. No, no. You mean this think, pre- think, specific game under this these circumstances? This specific yes. game, yes. and you say it's well, it's a ten point win. Yeah. If I, if, I if, a, if the pass goes to Brandon sure. Cooks three seconds earlier and the no, Rams take a, a seven half a second, quarter half a second earlier. Right. And by the way, also give credit. I thought I think it was Roma that did the announcing. The player on the Patriots, who it wasn't even his job yeah, yeah. to be back in the end yeah. zone there, who ran down oh, that he ran play like twenty yards, twenty yards from the opposite me, yeah. side of the field to run yeah. down that play. But if it becomes seven three there. Maybe it's a totally different ball game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. But given how much noise has been made about what Belichick's defense did to Goff and McVay, I mean, the story is that they just smothered. Yeah. They didn't do anything. But you know, if you just go, oh, yeah, there was that play, and there was that other play. There were literally I two. Know. Yeah, they could have been two I, touchdown I mean, passes. I, I, I think this, this is you know, I mean, this is the closest thing I'll come to a Patriots blowout in the Super Bowl. I'll take it. <laughs> but I mean, it really did not feel at all like the Patriots were. You know, I mean, retrospectively, like, oh, the Patriots like just dominated and were in control that whole game. And I mean, it only didn't feel like that to you. Well, really, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you're a Pats fan. Really, it, shame. It, it seemed pretty. I mean, because I, 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 look at like you know, I mean, how has how have well, the Patriots lost well, the Super Bowl? Well, let me ask you. Luki plays at the end. I mean, almost half, almost half, just under half of the Rams plays were either zero, zero or negative yards. Right. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And that's what the. That's but it's not the, like the Patriots on the other side. Again, well, the all you need is one. On the other side all you need is one of those long throws to connect. It didn't connect. But Shane, were you worried? Even let's, let's take didn't, another point but, in the game. Were you even worried? The score's now ten to three. Remember, the Rams did get down yeah. to the thirty yard line, and Goff throws a bad interception. Of course, he just kind of throws it up. Even if the Rams had scored there. Were you worried that the Patriots weren't going to come down the field and score a field goal? Come on. I, I know we all think of it as automatic, but yeah, I was I do think of it as know, automatic right, with okay. Brady. I mean, look. Okay. Well, that's what the, okay. Eagles, the Eagles knocked the ball out last yeah. year. I mean, we all thought it was going to be automatic, and it didn't get two yeah. plays into the but drive. But they were down yeah. eight points at that time. But yeah, Or five, sorry. At that time, it was down five points because yeah. the Eagles scored a field goal, and then Brady still yeah. almost drove them down the field. for they had it. Uh, I mean, I mean I, it, 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 it delights me that all of society thinks of that is automatic these now that he somehow does that but i i you know no i i, I was not confident i once the interception happened then i'm like okay well, sure I, but that, I, I mean yeah that was time to go home <laughs> at that point four minutes well i'm glad you had some anxiety i'm glad to know that there's four minutes to... left and they were only up by a touchdown even then i would say it was not automatic no it's not but, so uh, what did you guys think about the fourth down calls the the bots have said there were about mm. seven or eight you know mistakes some of the mistakes well, bad I, you know? I want to ask you guys what you thought i thought of you guys obviously when this happened that that you know, midfield. The, the one, the one at the end of the game where they decide to kick a field goal in fourth and one. Yeah, I thought that. I was, mean, it worked out. I thought that. I was, don't think it was a good. Call. I thought it was a mistake. I thought. Yeah. I thought they should have gone for the first down. Forty-one oh. yard field goal when Gotkowski's already missed one in the game. 
you know, and if they miss that field goal, all of a sudden you're not talking about the one with eight seconds left. No, 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 we're talking about the one with a minute minute thirty left. This this, this put the game out. The Patriots won. This this put the game out out of the reach. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Patriots had fourth and one. Yeah, yeah, right. No, no, fourth and an inch. I hated it. Oh, I hated it. Yeah. Although I was thinking, I mean, this this is an odd one. Bad things can happen on that thing, right? I mean, I for all the but you cannot score bad snap. You missed a field goal there at the four thirty-five yard line. All kinds of bad things. Defensive touchdown off of that, and they're not going to score a defensive touchdown off a dive up the middle or whatever the hell. Yeah, I, mean, that, I that, thought that was a put, very strange call by the Patriots there. Yeah, supposedly the the numbers were really close. The supposedly the expected oh, points. if you pr- plug it through yeah. a bot, but that's that not way. what you're interested in. You're interested in win probability yeah, at that point. Yeah, and those must have been very close too. Well, I mean, Pres- the thing is, if they succeed in either play, the game is basically over. It's yes. a weird win probability because if they kick the field, the field a successful field goal basically ended the game. Yeah, if they dove forward and gotten a first down. They would have ended no, no, the so game. Certainly, but, but let's be clear, though. Just like it actually played out, I'm not saying it had to work this way. Getting the first down with actually certainty ends the game. As you saw, they made a field goal. If the Rams could have scored 20 seconds earlier, it doesn't automatically end yeah, the game. I so, I mean, actually, true. if you play out even the win probability odds, I, of course, I'd rather be up by 10 by a large margin with 90 seconds left on the clock, but it didn't guarantee that it ended the yeah, game. Yeah, I, I think that roughly the, 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 what it came down to is the probability of success of each of them. And I would guess fourth and inches is probably 80 to 90% successful. And maybe say, at least for Brady and a yeah, sneak, because you know that's maybe what higher, would, but, higher. But uh, Goskowski at 41 yards is over 90% as well, so easily. Well, I when you ask the question about fourth down decisions more generally in the game, and what's true is that they it was just conservative, and it's mm-hmm. probably in the spirit they probably got caught up in okay, this is going to be a low scoring slugfest, and we want to play field position. And the Pats, I mean, I don't know how, how much was skill and how much was yeah. luck that so many of those punts were downed. You know, really, the, yeah. the, oh, both the punters, man, that was uh, that, well. The, yeah. the, the Eagles, I mean, the uh, the Rams punter was booming these things, but yeah. the Pats punter kept on dropping them down there on the three yard yeah, line. Yeah, three, uh, three of them within seven yards. I mean, that'd zone, be a good question. It's like how how reliable is that as a trait in a punter? Because I think that some of that is just luck or just chance. Yeah. Just bounces, can, yes. And um, and they consistently got lucky. They kept on not going for. I think in in most games Belichick would have gone for it in many of those situations. You know, he's on the he's on the Rams forty five yard line and it's fourth and two or something. I mean, you yeah. ought to go for it in that absolutely. Situation. Yeah, and, and, he's, I, and he's relatively aggressive typically. No, and I mean, I think it's funny. You go back to last year's Super Bowl and they went they, for it. They went for it. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it it probably their decision making does fold in kind of like how is my defense doing? How is you know? And so, and presumably it should. Yeah, presumably it should. But can you? I mean, th- this is always the question. You've got a chart that says do it under these circumstances, but then you have to adapt mm-hmm. for, you know, variables in play that day. But yeah. but how much? How much? But it's interesting because it's McVeigh that's taking the heat for the bad decisions. Correct. Belichick they lost, of course. Uh, so right, but it, but but that's not how we should be thinking. But uh, on the other hand, maybe Belichick knows something we don't know, and 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 maybe he's right. It is a very high defensive, a very heavy defensive, um, low scoring game, and field position yeah, matters I, I mean, more. And the, all those calculations we use all the season just I mean, are out the window. I mean, is that two of those two of those three punts say that were down inside the five could have easily easily been bounced out to the twenty five, yeah. and basically they would have given up twenty yards of yeah. field position. They would have gained twenty yards of field position. That's all. Yes. Yeah. and it would have looked very different. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, Belichick's never going to tell us what he's thinking, but, but I, I do. I, I think the sort of statistics statement I would make is, you know, to the extent that there's kind of like variation, even with the same in-game scenario, fourth and one at the forty or whatever, 
the amount of variation that's explained, the variation in that decision-making process, probably def- how your defense is doing, probably explains, like, I would guess 80, 90% of that variation. Well, I think I, that's I, really what coaches well, kind Mc, of base their variation on. You think so? so McVeigh is, 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 at least all season long, has been very conservative in fourth down. He's, yeah, as a matter of fact, we pointed that out two weeks ago for him. Yeah. He's actually one of yeah. the most conservative coaches going forward on fourth down yeah. when, like, every statistics says that you should. Most people say, well, this is the young gun and the young genius and everything. And he's, he's made more mistakes exactly. not going for it than most But I think Belichick is interesting because Belichick is generally fairly aggressive. And this is an example. <laughs> he decided, nope, not today. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and he wins. This, this is Wharton Moneyball, of course. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen, Andy Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. You guys can join the conversation. one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, 7866 or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, another way to reach out. We've been talking Super Bowl. We've got a little bit more to go here in the first half. I'd like to hear any other thoughts you have on the Super Bowl. Or, or did, did you update on the Rams much? I mean, does this kind of deflate expectations for the Rams, the system, this McVay-Goff system? Is it less, I mean, I mean, I less think robust it, than we thought it was? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think I, – I mean, I mean, the Rams are definitely kind of in a win-it-now sort of mode, and I think next year – their window is probably, you know, only the next couple of years, I think, before – they actually have to pay money for golf and 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 lose some players, but um, no, I, I think they'll be. They've got to go into the next season as like one of the favorites. Mm-hmm. I, I would guess maybe. Even I, the, I, I didn't do it, but I can easily run my forecast for next yeah. season uh, because my, yeah, right. my forecast is totally, totally dumb. They don't do it. They don't have anything to do with what happens over the season. Yeah. Over the off season has only to do with your previous two seasons yeah. records and uh, your your points allowed, points scored. And I'm I would end up shrinking the Rams pretty much further down towards the mean than I would the Patriots, mostly because Patriots just did it two years in a row, and now again, I, and, and the Rams have a, have the previous season where they weren't, and so I'm seeing this season slightly more flukish, so I'm probably gonna, I would probably predict the Rams that are probably about an eight-and-a-half win season. Let me give you a little nuance in there that's kind of interesting. Generally, I believe it's the case in football that offensive stats are more persistent than defensive stats. So if you looked at your numbers and regressed based on you know how, how much historically they have predicted year over year, you're going to regress your defensive numbers harder back. And so a team like the Pats, which were, I don't know, well, they're both strong offensively, right? But the Rams were one of the best offenses in the yeah. history And of the that, league. you believe, will carry over stronger. Historically, offensive stats have persisted better than defensive stats. I think this is what I, I, this is what I would do if I were grading the Rams, if you'd like, for next year. And back to what, I'll start with what Adi said about your thoughts about Goff. I think it's not evident. It's one game. But it's barely been the second half of the season. Is he an elite quarterback, and Shane, you even mentioned this, mm-hmm. that can manufacture something against a good defense? Yeah. I don't think he can do it on his own. So now what, if you're the Rams, what you have to say is, Goff is our quarterback. He's plenty good to win the Super Bowl. Let's believe that. It's not like he can, you yeah. can't win the Super Bowl with Jared Goff. You can. So now the question is, you better strengthen the other parts of your team. In other words, if you think that the way you're going to win the Super Bowl is by surrounding him necessarily with great receivers and he's just going to win the game that way, I think that's, to me, where you update. So that's what I would do. I would say to myself, I would have to strengthen my running game. I think I would definitely strengthen their... I mean, that's that's the areas they have to improve. I mean, they already did have an incredible... I I think they got kind of unlucky with whatever was going on. I mean, I personally believe that Gurley must have had some kind of injury or something like that. 
like Something. that for not to be to not be used. And so I think you well, know he was to, used a lot in the, in the game yesterday. Uh, no, 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 less than expected. Less than expected. So here's the observation. Like I'm, the, my final observation about about the future. I was talking to a young man who came to my in my office to discuss a, a senior uh, project, and we started talking about the Super Bowl. And during the course of the conversation, it occurred to us that this kid is 22 years old. He's a senior, graduating. He's two years younger than Goff. And he, the, thought, the prospect of, of being that age on the biggest stage in the world has got to be terrifying. So you have to recognize he's got upside. He's young. Yeah. He's moving up. And uh, the real question, so that, the, I, I, you, have to, you have to put your chips in the, in the, uh, yeah, no, I, in I the mean, golf like Because he's a kid and he's going to do better as he gets older and you, wiser you, and more you, mature. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... You know, I mean, Tom Brady was also 24 when he won the Super Bowl. So <laughs> oh, I'll just say that one out there, right? No, but and I'm not. I you know that's. But you have to admit, extra, no. Just, just is the Brady of 24 the same as the Brady in his peak? No, he must have gotten much better. He did get much better, no doubt so about that's it. So good, but, but that, you, you don't say it like it's guaranteed, right? I mean, Goff could be somebody who is a great athlete and and again an above average quarterback, but is relatively easily confused, can't adapt to a really good defense. Like like when you throw kind of confusing defensive schemes at him, which they did in the Super Bowl, he was not able to handle it, basically. Mm-hmm. And I mean that I mean I the one of the most interesting kind of coaching stories I heard was that the Patriots had two defensive plays for every play they actually had two defensive plays they could have run. And they waited with their alignment until that the the headphones cut off, you know, that they could no longer Talk to Goff in the you know in the huddle or whatever that fifteen seconds and then they chose and then they chose interesting and Goff because just couldn't attack. couldn't handle it. I mean this, but I think this is this speaks that Goff's future Huge. will be better. And I think he was he was facing in some sense the smartest team on the field or yeah. in the play, and he's inexperienced. I mean you. And that will only grow. He'll have the ability to. Yeah, no, and, to I, and, and I think Goff, if he makes it back to you know Super Bowl, and he's not playing Bill Belichick or not playing necessarily a defensive genius. I mean, I, I certainly think he's capable of winning a Super Bowl. Brady's first Super Bowl, sixteen for twenty-seven, one hundred and forty-five yards. Yeah, wasn't one, it? one TD, no interceptions. Oh, so that was Belichick's. <laughs> I mean, they all kind of have. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so odds for next year, favorites for next year is kind of NFC heavy. Um, what we, are they? there's already the, they're already up? Huh? So what course, are they? I assume KC would be the number one. Okay. So the the Chiefs and Pats were the favorites. Yeah, at seven hundred um, plus seven hundred, and then Rams, Bears, Saints are next. So all uh. the, the next are all NFC, and then Colts sliding in there. As oh, the, I, I, as I the would third believe favorite. that. Yeah, as the, third the Colts favorite definitely the are on the rise. Really good. Yeah, they looked really good at the end of last year. So guys, that that no Jets. Know, What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be fun. I'm waiting. Well, speaking of young quarterbacks, it'll be fun. Wait, to, but when, as soon as Brady retires, the Jets may have a reasonable opportunity. Yeah. I, mean, that, I mean, why not the Jets? If, they're, if they take a three-year time horizon and you think Brady's got, at most, maybe three more years. If, that would be amazing if he pulls out three years. I know. 41. It would be incredible. It? it would be incredible. But no, I mean, I, I think with the Jets and the Bills and the Miami, they're kind of frustratingly in a little bit of a holding pattern here. Yeah. You know. did, did you see the stats on the old guy, the old guy records? Yeah, I yeah. did. So the best season. No. Guys, just I like the names. So forget this. They're like Sonny Jurgensen, Lynn Dawson, Earl Morrill, for God's sake. We're talking some old guys. These are like ancient guys. Back when it was a running game. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how the how could you Oh, you're play? talking about when sort of the kind of the, the quarterbacks aging into their yeah. like mid four. Yeah, these, you are know? The, these are the best seasons yeah. at age 40, 41, and 42. Like you look at the five or six well, best seasons. Well, you have seasons, almost no one And left. you have... 
you had these guys that played in the like sixties and early seventies, and I guess you could play quarterback back then. Well, it really was 42. a running game. I mean, for the most part, I, I, it's amazing. Uh, what is the plan for the long, cold winter? In front of us, that was the last football well, we, game. When, when, what the do you NFL mean? Three, yes, the last football the NFL game draft isn't that far oh, away. <laughs> Eric, how many days? <laughs> oh, it's what's ten? Ten until pitchers and catchers. catchers. Yeah, there's a lot ready. of excitement going on in the NBA now too. Okay, there well, is, especially in Philadelphia. So I want to hear about some of that excitement. We woke up to this news. Of course, in the NBA, a big deal is the trade deadline. So this every year, tomorrow three teams are frantic until. The rosters are set so, as of tomorrow. I'd love to hear a little bit about this, and let me just give you my perspective. I know enough about the NBA to know who the superstars are, but there's a level of talent one notch below the superstars, yeah. and that's that what this I know trade. nothing about. And yeah. people keep talking about it, so I want you to tell me about the Sixers trade. I want to tell you to tell me about Anthony Davis. Yeah, Apparently tell me that about matters. Anthony who Davis. Who is this guy, and why don't I not know about How him? How is? I mean, because <laughs> literally the Lakers appear to have offered. The entire their team, besides LeBron, as <laughs> well as their, yeah, all, their entire future team but, for this guy. And, and, I mean, it's not like I haven't heard the name Anthony Davis well, before, but I, I haven't heard him been like, oh, my goodness, yes, Anthony exactly. Davis. No, he, had, no. he has been that, he's, he's been that highly thought of really since he arrived, and he's lived up to the expectation. He's actually produced, yeah. and he's done it. In a club that doesn't have anything else going for it. Is that why? Is that yeah. why? Okay, so yeah. that's probably so, why I'm, I, he doesn't hit the news. Just one for minute on each because we're yeah. coming up to the quarter hour here. Anthony Davis is a thirty point fifteen rebound guy. Okay, where is he in the in the the top ten? He's well into the top ten in the NBA. I think most people would say. It's a top five NBA player. Okay, wow. wow. All right, yeah, so, no, I so mean, you're if you knock off the I four or five that I know, the, and well, then he's the next. LeBron, Durant, maybe Curry. Curry. Kawhi Leonard? No. No way. Anthony Davis, every team in the NBA, in my view, would rather have Anthony Davis than Kawhi Leonard. He, Harden. He third, Harden. Harden. He was, Harden. Harden. He was third place in the MVP voting last year. Okay. All right. So there you have it. Okay. So, right. But I'm saying, I'm talking about yeah. a big man who's going to score 30 and 15. I mean, he's maybe averaging 29.7 and 13 plus rebounds. I mean, the guy is So remarkable. break down why the, uh, LA wants him, just to have LeBron and the two Perfect together? Perfect matchup with LeBron. Perfect okay. matchup with LeBron. That's all. And then, you know, we'll talk in the last half hour he, about the Sixers He came out and trade. said there are only four places that I would sign. And so that, I mean, it's the two L.A. teams, the Knicks and the Bucks, I think. But also just to get to our, when we talk about the Sixers trade later on the show, you need multiple superstars to win in the NBA. Mm -hmm. LeBron right now is with a bunch of second-tier players. Like you said, Kyle Kuzma is a very good player. You know, there's lots of hearts, a good player. Ball's a very good player, but not the superstar. Yeah. This would give them the second real superstar. And then that's the, how you build a great team. And then we'll talk about the Sixers in the last half hour. And I have some big well, concerns and questions. You give us give us a little bit of a preview. Well, Tobias Harris is one of these guys that Audie's talking about. It's like he's a very highly regarded player. But if you're just a casual fan, you may not know much about mm -hmm. him. The guy averages 21 a game, plays for the Clippers. He's a three-point specialist. The guy averages four, the guy this year is shooting forty-three percent from the three-point line. So the guy, isn't, isn't that what the Sixers needed? It, it is what they needed. But now what you have to question yourself: is you've got five guys on your starting five that all need the basketball, <laughs> and that's my concern: is that you've got Simmons who handles the ball. He doesn't shoot a lot, but he still averages eighteen, nineteen a game. You know, Embiid needs the ball. Jimmy Butler needs the ball. Harris is a pure shooter. He needs the ball. And J.J. Reddick's a shooter. So you may have the first team in the NBA where their starting five may average 
90 plus percent of the team's points because when, when in the last half hour i'll read to you the names of who's on the sixers bench now and you guys probably haven't heard of any of them <laughs> yeah any of them hey, maybe the, you have because we're in philly were you yeah. at that raptors game last night I was not at the Raptors you, game last so, night. So I only saw the first half. They were getting housed in the first half. I mean, it was 20 points. Well, you know what it showed? It was almost – I'm not going to try to make the analogy of the Super Bowl. It was almost impossible for them to move the ball and score. Toronto is a great defensive team. The Sixers had to work hard for every single yard, bucket, yeah. That to move, just even moving the ball around the court, uh-huh. and that maybe Elton Brand saw this and says, "We need more firepower." <laughs> you think he pulled the trigger on that trade after that game? Well, it's a fact that he pulled it after the game. <laughs> now, because those guys played last I, night, I know. So now the question is, did he, he watch that game and say, no. "We can't beat Toronto no. with the squad we have"? I'll be, I'll be, I'll be shocked if I'm going to tweet Elton decision. Brand on at <laughs> W Moneyball, and I'm going to get his answer if he saw last night's game. All right, fellas, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern from the SiriusXM Business Radio Studios in Huntsman Hall, Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Cade Massey hosting with Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can be here too. You can be here in person. You don't have to just listen. You can call one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Email us businessradio at siriusxm dot com, or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball. We're going to restart our over under segments, our traditional closing in the non football season. We close the show with over unders. You guys often suggest good ideas up there for over unders, and we'd welcome them. We are just out of an opening half hour when we talk Super Bowl, mostly almost exclusively. Had to vent that a little yeah. bit. Um, Thank you guys, by the way. a little bit for Shane. Long-suffering. Yeah. Long-suffering. <laughs> no, it's been... It's, yeah, man. yeah, it's been a whole two years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and, you know, it's at least almost 100 days since the Boston Championship before. Oh, God. So. <laughs> I know, that on, hurt. That, on, by the way, that hurt. On the college side <laughs> of things... Uh, now on, <laughs> on the college side of things, we also have news today. The college football signing day is today's traditionally the first Wednesday in February, and though we now have two signing days, there's an early signing period in December, it's still wrapping up today. To help us understand what's going on in the world of college football recruiting, we have Bud Elliott from SB Nation back on the show. Bud, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Morning, guys. Thanks for having me back again. You bet. Where are you calling from this morning? I'm down here at my home in Fort Myers, Florida. So nice and warm and uh, perfect recruiting weather. That's fantastic. All right. So Bud is the National Recruiting Director and Editor for SBNation.com. He holds degrees from blue-blooded college football programs. He degrees from Alabama and Florida State. I think you're really a Knowles fan, though, right, in the end? Yeah, I, I started the uh, the big Florida State site, uh, Tomahawk Nation, back in 08, and oh, that wow. kind of blossomed. And, uh, um, yeah, I... I you know, to be honest, as, as I've done this job, I, I really end up rooting for the kids, you know, and, and for the coaches who I, I feel like you know treat players fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you really don't when you're doing this. You don't really have as much time to do, you know, to, to root for a, a specific team. Well, that, that's 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 impressive. If that's if you've worked your way out of that, I'm curious. I won't ask you to tell me coaches you pull against because you don't like the way they treat kids. But are there coaches out there that you think? treat kids especially well and and lead you pulling for their programs because of how they kind of stand out in that way sure you know i i think uh um you know coaches at, at northwestern and, and and clemson 
um, you know, Stanford do, do a really good job. That, of course, that you know, you're, you're dealing with, with a, a certain caliber of kid at, at, at some of those schools, but it does seem like they're they're pretty upfront um, with, with, with the kids. They're they're not out there necessarily offering you know 500 kids and, and, and playing a lot of you know games. We're, we're throwing out offers that are you know quote unquote an offer, but you it's not really committable, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it there's there's all sorts of games played, and, and there's a lot of pressure on coaches to to play those games right there's, there's millions of dollars at stake uh, for them not the players of course well it's um, interesting in, to say that because the three that first came to mind for you two of the programs are kind of you know they're kind of fancy schools and they're not traditional powerhouses northwestern and stanford but then clemson is they're, they're right there in the middle of you know the hotbed of college football they're competing with alabama you would think that they would have all the pressure that would push them to act in ways that we don't like exactly right and you know I, I do believe Clemson does it the right way. They, they really foster relationships extremely well with kids. Uh, you know, for instance, Clemson Clemson will not let you take an official visit to Clemson if you are still committed to another school. They say, "Hey, look, we don't want our kids who are quote quote committed to us visiting elsewhere." And in turn, we we, we you know we, we keep that same energy on the other side. Oh wow! If you're to another school, you cannot visit us. So if you oh, want to wow. visit us, you have to decommit from the other school. Yeah, that sounds unusual. That's impressive. That that is impressive. Interesting. All right, Bud. Listen, let, let's catch up a little bit. The, the 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 signing landscape has changed since they went to this early signing period last year. I believe was the first time. So the, so something like three quarters of the recruits are signed in December. How would you say this has impacted recruiting? What's the you know this is one of these things where there are always these unintended consequences for these changes. What do you think the consequences have been to having the two signing periods? Sure. So I, I think the biggest one is that now many coaching changes take place a little bit later in the cycle because schools want these coaches to hang on to actually sign the recruits that they have uh, recruited for, for the most of the year. And then these coaches end up bouncing. So I, I do think that ultimately it's, it's largely a net negative for the players, which is not surprising in a sport that it doesn't pay the players and that there's a lot of benefits that uh, don't go to them. Um, I had proposed an idea to where you could designate certain coaches and you have to be in agreement with the school that if they left, you know, before the, the actual start of the real football season, um, you, you could get out of, you could get out of your agreement and, and go elsewhere. Right. We, we saw this with Brew McCoy, uh, the, the, one of the, the top athletes on the West coast. He had signed with USC. Uh, however, almost immediately thereafter, Kingsbury left for the Arizona Cardinals. That, that probably wasn't planned by Kingsbury. However, McCoy signed there kind of under the pretense that that he was going to be uh, you know, coordinated by, by Kingsbury, and right. ultimately uh, he did get out, and he ended up going to Texas. I, I would like to see that be more of a standardized process, to where in your letter of intent with the school you agree if the head coach, the coordinator on your side of the ball, the position coach, or the area of recruiter, the guy who you've probably fostered that relationship with over two or three years, the coach you're probably closest with. Mm-hmm. If any of those four leave, it just seems reasonable to me that you can get out and transfer without having to lose a year of eligibility. And, of course, because it's so reasonable, we probably will not see this happen uh, <laughs> if you look at the NCAA's track record. Well, you know, they have gone that direction with the transfer portal. So this has been a term that none of us you know, conceived of before the last couple of months, and now everybody in college football is talking about it. It's been one of the biggest stories of the last month, I'd say, of the offseason is the transfer portal. So now players can put themselves into this 
pool essentially and, and find out are there other schools interested in having me? And they put themselves at risk. I understand that they, they can be excluded. The coaches can rightfully exclude them from anything from then on once they put themselves in the portal. But not all coaches do, right? Some coaches, oh, you take your time, look around, but keep on staying with us. This seems to have the potential to really change the landscape of college football. I mean, free agency tra- yeah. changed the landscape of the NFL 30 years ago or whatever it was. There, there's no doubt about it. Now, now, the key difference there is that just because you're in the transfer portal, you, you still do lose a year of eligibility unless you're able to acquire some sort of, of, of hardship waiver. Right. right? Like um, uh, like Shea Patterson did when he moved to Michigan, Michigan yep. uh, this last year. But I, I do think the transfer portal is, is a good step, right? Because it, it, we want to give kids the best possible information to make the right decision. And the old process for transferring used to be basically you had to kind of talk to your high school coach or some sort of, of handler or middleman and say, hey, um, you know anybody else out there who might have a better depth chart, right? Like, I'm not really happy here. <laughs> right. And you had to call around. Now you can put yourself in the portal, which, yes, it does open you up to lose your scholarship at, at, at the current spot. So, you know, buyer beware. However, you're able to acquire better information, and then other schools can contact you without fear of tampering charges. And they could say, hey, here's what we're offering. Here's our depth chart. Does it make sense for you to come here? Yes, you would lose a year of eligibility. However, we might be a better fit. Uh, for you, or perhaps you do have a legitimate, you know, hardship waiver, uh, which seems like they're being a little bit more frequently granted right. by the NCAA. Right, uh, right. But yeah, I, I think the transfer portal has been a positive. But one thing there, I was going to ask you about the tampering possibilities. Are, there are rules against that, right? But my impression is that, I mean, actually, it's not my impression. I just, I just heard this from 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 a Dave Wanstead interview talking about when he was. When he was talking with the coach, I think where was once he was at Pittsburgh most recently, and he was talking with the, I think USF coach, or at least he was observing the USF strategy. Seemed to be recruit these guys when they come out of high school, knowing that a lot of them are going to go to better schools than USF, but then they're not all going to stick. And when they leave, if you've built a good relationship with them in high school, they'll consider you for transferring. So that's not necessarily tampering. I mean, might have gone quiet for two years, but with the transfer portal, it introduces the possibility of. Well, this recruiting is, is a longer game than it used to be. It's not over when they come out as, as a senior. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think as a college coach now, uh, you need to keep hitting up those high school coaches who you know, hey, how, how is so-and-so doing? Is, is he liking it there see. You know, at, at, at the school at which he originally signed? Have you talked to him lately? Come it's back. not It's not tampering if you go through his high school coach. That's amazing. Correct. All right. Yeah. Are there any upsides to going into the transfer portal with respect to the team that you're currently with or the school you're currently with? And well, you I, talk I about the downside. On notice. And so does that help you? Do they put you in a better position to play, or does that hurt or help at all? Well, I, I think you can put a team on notice, right, uh, that, hey, I, I'm not really entire, entirely thrilled with, with, with where I'm at within the program right now. You know, don't just assume that, that I'm going to patiently wait my turn, right? You know, I, I, I need some more carries if I'm a running back. Or, hey, I, I'd actually like, like some more reps. You know, maybe it gets you a little more – more FaceTime with the head coach. Hey, let's let's sit down. Let's talk about this. Do you just want out, or are you just exploring your options because you're not entirely happy? What do we need to do? Okay, that that actually seems reasonable. We can probably do that. Or look, you are kind of overshooting where, where you fit within our program, and right. if that's what you think, maybe it is a good chance to transfer. Right. So again, hopefully, it leads to the player acquiring better information, not only about other schools, but potentially also about the future plans for him mm-hmm. at his current school. And it probably is a great opportunity for, for uh, you know, the school to get information on the kid. 
So, Bud, this is Eric Bradlow. I had a question. Uh, Cade started off by talking about the multiple signing days. I've always wondered when you're recruiting the impact of the sequential nature of it. In other words, let's imagine I'm trying to recruit a player. Let's just make it up at cornerback. And I've already signed a cornerback, and I've already announced to everybody I've signed a cornerback. And now this other player is saying, hmm, I'm looking at Alabama, and I see there's only one open slot here. But, of course, you want depth as a coach. So I've always said sometimes information out there can actually hurt in recruiting. How do teams think about the release of information and how it helps them draft in totality? And would multiple signing days, in some sense, hurt that process? I think you're hitting on a great point. There's absolutely an element there to, to when you take kids. Uh, we know for a fact that some schools will not send letters of intent to sign to certain kids until later in the day, right? They'll say, hey, oh my, if, if you want to sign with us, understand that, that you're not our top target on the board. We want you, but we are not going to take a letter of intent from you until we hear, you know, from plan A. Like, like we think you're, we think you're a great player, but you know, make up some kind of excuse as to why the other guy is slightly higher on the board. Probably you could just tell the kid you had a longer relationship with this other guy. But if he does decide to choose this other school, then we'll send you a letter of intent. If you if you really want to be here, we know you'll wait for us. You know, but, there's all kind of games that they, they play with these kids uh, yeah. as far as releasing information. And also, you know, who is allowed to sign when, right? The, the, the timing of, sign, of sending a letter of intent. Uh, definitely matter at times. But how common is that practice? I think I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Longhorn alum and a, and a rabid Longhorn fan, and we like to think that our team is a little bit above the fray. And I think they do play, you know, relatively clean. So I think they're kind of spoiled and not seeing that much around that program. But, and I could be naive, but how what you've just described sounds. I mean, it's on, on signing day, they're still not letting. I mean, we've always heard about non, you know, these offers. People say what are the non-signable offers or whatever the term is. You hear about that, but that could be in July or October. You're talking about on signing day. They're still not able to sign until, you know, the guys ahead of them have cleared one way or the other. How common is that? Sure. So it's it's not rampant, right? Like, I would not say that like each school is doing it in two or three kids. You probably have a couple schools each year who do it with with one kid. Generally, come the the, the traditional signing period, you know for the most part, who you're going to get, who you're not going to get. There's a couple kids right. you're probably sweating, but it's not like you have seven or eight backup plans lined up, not, right. not good backup plans at least, right. uh, who, who you would actually want to take come signing day. So it, it, I don't want to make that sound like it's rampant. It's just one way you know, for, for schools to manage that. It also uh, will manage that in, in terms of when you allow a kid to take a visit, right? You might tell a kid, hey, uh, we want you to visit – we think the last weekend before signing day would be the best time for you to visit us because you may have your plan A right. you know, coming in early January. Right. Uh, there, there's all kinds of things they need to do because some kids want to commit you know, really, really badly, but they may not be your top choice. We, we also see this sometimes. Uh, you, you'll see high school coaches complaining, you know, what, why didn't the school offer, you know, offer my kid? Why, why didn't the local school offer my kid? Well, probably because they know he wants to go there so badly right. that if they offer him right now, He's going to jump on that choice, and and, and the thing is, if the local school kind of screws over a kid, th- th- those high school coaches are going to remember that. If an out of state school does, the the, the repercussions are, are not as great. Right. So, right. You know, an out of state school can offer a kid and then say, uh, you know, forget about it. We're talking to Bud Elliott. Bud is a national recruiting director and editor for SB Nation, widely regarded as the top recruiting analyst in college football. Bud, um, talk to us a little bit about wh- what teams are showing well. 
we kind of expect the Alabamas and the Georgias to be at the top of the board, and they are right now at the top of the board. But uh, in general, are there are there any surprises this year? Are you seeing teams kind of outperforming their recent standards, or, or anybody underperforming what you expected? Sure, uh, I think you, you can look at Oregon uh, doing a, a really nice job out on the West Coast. It's currently, a top ten class. I, uh, I project them to finish in the top ten and. For the first time in a while, uh, the, the number one recruiting class in the Pac-12 is, is not, not USC or Washington. So a uh, really nice job by Oregon. They needed to take a large class. They, they, they have 25 right now. They might have one or two more uh, today. So a good job by Mario Cristobal out there. They ended up getting, uh, who in some people's opinion is the number one player in the country, Kayvon Thibodeau, right. a, a big-time defensive end uh, from California. So they, they've been impressive. Obviously, you mentioned you're a Longhorn fan. They've, they've done a really nice job with the number three overall class. Uh, yesterday on Twitter, we had some Texas A&M fans complaining that, that several Longhorn commitments uh, received late ranking bumps. And I said, uh, <laughs> all right, well, I, I'm not going to get into all this. I, I, I'm guessing there's not a conspiracy here. They probably just watched the kids play as seniors and, the, and then, you know, right. up the rankings. Uh, and I, I think Penn State has done a really nice job oh, really? With, with their class. Okay. Yeah, they, 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 they've done a... They've done a strong job to close. Uh, they might actually end up landing Nick Cross today, a longtime Florida State commit. We know his parents prefer him to be at Penn State. He, he's out of the uh, out of the Baltimore area. Okay. Um, who else is going down the list here? It, there's some interesting things. Ohio State uh, is likely to finish third in the Big Ten, which we have not seen. Right. Gosh, yeah, I, I wanted to comment on that. Um, this is Adi Weiner. I've been working on building a sort of a draft, um, uh, not draft, a, a recruiting uh, evaluation tool based on expected number of future professionals. But this is great progress for us because Adi is yes. a baseball guy. It's been years. <laughs> it's been years of us talking about football. That we, and, and the key to getting him intrigued was to give him data. To get, once you give me data, I get interested <laughs> in anything. So one of the things that I that I've uh, come to understand, and I don't know, I think this is this 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 uh, drives with most. Uh, experts' opinion, is that there are certain programs that have done very, very well, at least by my measure, over the last 10 years. Alabama, of course, but also Ohio State and also USC. They seem to be really the, the three that I've seen sort of consistently over the last 5, 10 years above all the others in terms of their uh, recruiting class, in terms of my measure. But I'm looking at the board, and of course, Alabama's right on top, and I don't see USC anywhere near, and they're a team that's just done very well on average over the last you know X number of years. What's going on? Am I wrong, or is this a, a total turnaround, or what's happening? No, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, Clay Helton is, is on the hot seat, right? Uh, he, he made a, a big-time power move to go get Cliff Kingsbury, and that only lasted for about three weeks. And uh, now I think some people probably expect him to be a, a lame duck coach. At USC, and and if you're a kid in South, in, in South, not South Florida, excuse me, in Southern California right now, you have options. Normally, I, I kind of think USC is having the, the right of first refusal for right. the vast majority of really elite prospects west of the Rockies. Right, there's just nobody else out west who recruits at the same level USC is, and I do believe that USC has a, a gear as a program they can shift into that really nobody else in the Pac-12 has. And that's not to say there can't be other really great years out there. I mean, Oregon's played for the national title twice in the last decade or so. But I do think USC's ability to get there. This year, they are really underachieving on the recruiting trail. That's not a good sign. And, and it is a, it's a major outlier considering what they normally do. I, I will caution it with this. USC is traditionally probably the best closer in the nation. Oh. They oftentimes will come into signing day with a class like outside the top 10, outside the top 15, 
and then finish, you know, third or fourth. Do you think that a lot of this has to do with geography? I mean, if you think about it, the way you described it is that they're the dominant team west of the Rockies. And and it probably has to do with geography. Ohio State probably owns the middle of the country and Alabama the south. And that's kind of how why those three have really risen at the top. Is it perhaps the world is so much smaller now and that maybe if you are west of the Rockies, you can consider going elsewhere and looking at other places just because it's so easy to talk and get to? And does that does that have a factor? There's no, there's no doubt about it that, that it's, it's definitely becoming, becoming smaller. Uh, you know, not, now you can video chat with the coach, right? You, you, you can, you can take uh, HD campus tours if you want, and, and I, I think it's easier for kids to visit now and, and, and go elsewhere. It's also, you know, USC has had some disappointing recent seasons. There, there's a lot of turmoil right there with with the program. If USC goes out and, and, and makes an elite level hire following Clay Helton, I would expect them to be right back up at the top. I mean, because we still see a lot of elite kids like USC. I mean, they're, we're talking about them falling off. They're still going to sign it. It's probably pretty easily a top 15 class, just not that top three or four level. I think this has more to do with their recent underachieving than it does yeah. the, the, the world becoming smaller. But there's no doubt that that is a factor. Bud, we're down to just about a minute, maybe 30 seconds with you. I, I'm remembering correctly, though, am I not, that you built this little model that that's, that relates the quality of the recruits to the national champions. I, I, if I remember right, you said you have to have at least half of your roster as three or four stars or above three star. Or what's the, What was the cutoff again? That was a very neat heuristic you generated. Correct. So I, I just I called it the blue chip ratio. Uh, we, we've been doing it for a while now. And what you need to do is... Quickly, bud, quickly. Sure, yeah. Okay, over the last four years, did you sign more four and five stars than three and four stars? Everybody who wins a title has at least that that ratio. Four and five greater than two and three? Correct. Okay. And everybody who's won has been over... The ratio has been greater than one. Wow. Yes. Um, So we're going to be watching... Have you been updating that thing? You need to be. Uh, I, I usually update it in, uh, in in August, right before the season. Okay, all right, fantastic. It's a great little. It's a Bill Jamesian distillation. Much appreciated, Bud. Thank you, man. Especially on Saturday, really appreciate you giving us some time. Okay, take care. That's Bud Elliott, national recruiting director and editor for SB Nation, one of the one of the one of the world's best college football analysts on recruiting. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have. I have to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Whole crew today, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can be also. Give us a ring. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us. Especially good way to reach us if it's not one of our live shows. If you're hearing a replay. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern in the morning on Wednesday. It's a replay and you can reach out by email. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle there. You can send questions, observations, complaints. Whatever you'd like. We're just off the line with Bud Elliott, SBN college football recruiting expert. By the way, you can follow Bud on Twitter as well, at Bud Elliott3. Great follow. Rolling into our second guest segment, we're delighted to have back on the show Dan Altman. Dan is the founder of North Yard Analytics, a consultancy 
focused on soccer. He's a former academic. In fact, he probably still holds a position, an affiliation with Stern. That's the business school at NYU. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be back. Where are you calling in from today, Dan? Brooklyn, New York. All right. Well, appreciate your making time for us. Can you give us a little bit of background again? It's been long enough that our listeners may not remember how you got into this business. You wandered at some point from Harvard and the world of economics to soccer, and not just a little bit. I mean, you're doing a lot of work in soccer analytics, and we're curious how that came to be. Sure. I mean, I, I started out as an economist. I got my Ph.D. in economics, and I went on to do a lot of different jobs as an economist for the next 15 years. I was a government economic advisor. I was a journalist. I was a strategic consultant. Uh, I, I was an academic as, as well at Stern, where I taught courses on global macroeconomic forecasting. Uh, and then after about 15 years, I kind of got bored and decided I wanted to do something a little different. Um, so uh, I actually dropped a book contract that I had at the time and decided to buy some data for soccer instead. And um, played around with the data, got some interesting results, and reached out to some clubs. Uh, one of those clubs slash organizations was City Football Group, which became my first and eventually biggest client. Um, they own Manchester City Football Club and many others around the world. And so I started a consulting firm, and uh, a few years after that, I was asked to work in-house by an ownership group, so I got the experience of working inside a couple of clubs. Uh, and now, recently liberated, uh, I've got a couple other things going Free on, agent. including trying to uh, buy a club. Ah, well, that's good fun. That uh, we got a little, you got a little taste of being on the inside, and you liked it, huh? Well, I, it gave me the education that I think I needed to to really know how these organizations operate. And mm -hmm. I think one of the best ways to monetize a really powerful sports analytics platform is to actually own a club, right. uh, because otherwise you can't be sure that you're going to be able to implement these things to their full potential. Yeah, we talk about that tension all the time. You know, there are a lot of football, American football teams with you know tons of analysts running around the building, but they're not paying any attention to them. And I'm sure that happens in every sport, essentially. Um, the 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 time that you got started, what what data did you buy? Like what was available in the world of soccer analytics at that time? So I was able to buy one full season of event data from Opta for the English Premier League, and it was the 2012-13 season, mm -hmm. and uh, which had, I believe recently concluded. So I'm now in my sixth or seventh year working on this stuff. Um, before that, I had been interested in it, and I'd done some work without event data where I just was looking at, um, you know, minutes played and results, things like that. I, I built a model to predict outcomes of World Cup matches that did pretty well. But when you get event data, then you're looking at 1,500 to 2,000 events per match with X and Y coordinates and timestamps and descriptors. And then you can get into more complex stuff. And people today have tracking data and now uh, recently presented at a forum in London was looking at body orientation with a combination of video and data. So there's all sorts of stuff you can look at now. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about the details here. We, you know, we are mostly casual soccer fans. We, we get pulled in pretty enthusiastically about once every four years. Um, I wonder what simultaneously yeah, with that. Um, but, but we're also, you know, we're turned on by the potential with soccer analytics where we recognize there's a, there's increasingly there's just a ton of data it's rich data but it's neat moment because you and others are basically inventing the stats that will be you know that'll become rote 
10 years from now. So it's a really interesting moment. Can you give us a primer on the various measures that people are looking at? What has been considered rejected? What are, where do you think the field's going to go? Like, what is, what, when we are watching the game, what should we, we be looking at? If we at, want right? to watch it as analysts, what should we be looking at? Yeah, so we're starting to see some of these stats get incorporated into broadcast coverage. I would say that that moment where we were creating the stats that would become part of coverage probably happened a few years ago because right now analysts are going beyond that and there's some question about whether the stuff that they're producing now, which is increasing in complexity, can actually be implemented in, inside a club or even in, in media and outside a club to, to the public. Real quickly, Dan, can you give us an example of that? So I'm, I'm guessing yeah. you're talking about something from motion tracking, so the, the, the computational and analytical processes required are pretty heavy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, just to go back a little bit, when I got into this, there were people who were bringing analytics in from other fields, from other sports, uh, especially from hockey. Uh, ice hockey has a couple of stats called Corsi, yep. um, and uh, there's one which looks at total shot ratios. Uh, I more, more about sort of, of scoring, o- focusing on scoring o- opportunities as opposed to scoring events, basically. Yeah, and and. But unfortunately, the way that those were calculated uh, didn't really capture the game because uh, often you were looking at ratios instead of you know sums and 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 uh, you know we we shots shots basically are a number that increases one by one during a game and when you start looking at ratios then you start to obscure the sort of additive nature of the game and and then when you start right. to look at probabilities attached to scoring those shots then you need product so there was some there was sort of a computational problem with a lot of those and that problem was basically solved by statistics called expected goals and one of those is exactly what I just said. It's just the probability of a given shot being scored uh, using historical data from the same location and situation. And what I was able to bring into the field was something called ball progression expected goals, which basically says that at every location on the field where a team could have possession of the, of the ball, there's some probability of going on to score a goal. And when you move the ball, you change that probability, and that changes the expected goals from that possession. So we have these two expected goals paradigms now that are starting to really integrate themselves in the sport as a whole. One is the sort of shot creation expected goals, and the other is the ball progression expected goals. Doesn't it depend enormously on where the other players are? I mean, how do you make a decision on the expected goal given just the location of the ball or progression just on the location of the ball? So, we, you know, we try with event data to get as much information about the situation as we can into that. And often we're looking at proxies like phases of the game or where the ball come from came from to, to try and estimate where the other players might be. When we incorporate tracking data as well, then we know the location of every moving object on the field, uh, all the players, the ball, even the referees. So we can bring those two things together and get a much more refined model. What's interesting is actually when we start to bring those things in, we add some information, but maybe not as much as you'd expect. I think that the bulk of the information can still be gleaned even from the event data. Is that right? So you, you, you've you've played with this with and without the all the contextual stuff, and you're saying it's not that this doesn't add that much explanatory power. No, it, it, you know it adds some, but but you know the the distance from goal and the angle on goal that the striker is facing. That that's just huge. I mean, that just makes a huge difference uh, to to the success 
probability mm-hmm. of any shot. Mm-hmm. And all the other stuff after that is, is going to have a second-order effect. So can, can, can I just get a sense of the order of magnitude? What is the typical probability of success of a shot? It must be very, very low because there's very little scoring. And, but, and, and, and are there situations? In other words, are game ones be, won because of many, 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 many low-probability shots or are games won because of just a few very high-probability shots? Well, there are teams that take both of those strategies, and some of them do it deliberately. And because it is a low-scoring sport, usually you'd rather have two 50, two 50% shots during a game than 10, 10% shots. You know, both of those are going to add up to one expected goal, right, for the probabilities. But getting that first goal is so important that it doesn't really matter whether you go on to score nine more, right? So, so it's better to have the high-probability shots in general in this sport. But you tend to see teams that are really good teams have a lot of possession, and so they're able to take a lot of shots, high and low probability. The average shot is about 9 or 10% probability of scoring. So you just kind of pointed out uh, through that vignette, maybe a problem with this kind of phrasing thing as an, ex- as an expected goal framework for evaluating kind of probability of winning, because Maybe, maybe, maybe the outcome shouldn't be the number of ex- expected goals. It should be, you know, the probability of a goal or something like that. And and, and you're sort of saying that like you different things would be things would be weighted differently if you had that as your kind of objective. Well, what we can do is look at the expected goals from all the shots at, at, during a game, and then simulate, you know, using many iterations uh, to see what the most likely outcomes of the games would be if we always had those same shots during each iteration of our simulation. So, you know, one team gets 10 shots, the other team gets five. Okay, let's go through and a thousand times simulate this game where one team has 10 shots, the other team has five with the probabilities that are attached. We'll use random numbers to determine whether each shot is scored or not. And then we can come up with, you know, a percentage uh, likelihood of each outcome. You know, how likely is a 2-1 score? How likely is a 1-1 score? And this gives you a feel for exactly what I was just saying. You know, what's the likelihood of actually getting points from the game? Mm-hmm. Do you get a, this is our brother, do you get a sense, Dan, that uh, players, for example, let's imagine a 0-0 game somewhere in the second half, and a player says to himself, you know, I've got, I could absolutely, I have a high risk shot here, but one that's possible. But I'm going to pass this up because I know this first goal is really worth a lot. Do you think there's any, or when they see a shot where they can possibly score, they take that opportunity? Do you actually see them saying, I know the importance of the first goal, and therefore I may pass up this shot for a better shot that's coming? Do you see any of that strategic thinking on players? So this is a really interesting area because it is possibly an area where analytics has led a change in the sport. We have seen over time the average shot value increase slightly and the shots being taken closer to goal. And to get shots closer to goal, you typically have to pass the ball more, hold on to possession longer to create that opening. And there are certainly teams where the coaching staff has looked at the analytics and said, we need to get closer, we need higher quality chances. We still see situations, especially on a corner, for example, where somebody's going to cross the ball into the penalty area, and usually a defender's going to head the ball out, and there'll be a midfielder standing on the edge of the penalty area just waiting to have a crack at that ball that's coming towards them off the head of a defender and trying to score from 25 yards out. That's a bad shot, but we still see it. So there are definitely players whose eyes get wide when they see an opportunity like that, no matter what. 
But we're trying to cut down on things like that, and the coaching staff is trying is starting to integrate that into their strategy. You're starting to see, especially the better teams, trying to hold on for better shots. The the way you talk about that, you can't help but think about teams like the Houston Rockets and the NBA, who were early adopters of analytics in terms of their implications for strategy on the court. So Mori ball, so layups and three points, and that's it. Are there leaders that we would notice watching? who adhere better to analytics-based insights than other clubs? Are there teams out there that are further along and actually translating it onto on-field? Well, I think that Leicester City, when they won the Premier League a few years ago, was a good example of that. I mean, analytics didn't win them the league, but it put them in a position where a little bit of luck could push them into that uh, championship spot. And they certainly used analytics to put the right pieces together in terms of their squad and also to develop a strategy that would maximize uh, the value of their squad. Now, that didn't happen in a vacuum. There was also coaching uh, that was heavily involved in that. Uh, Claudio Ranieri, the coach at the time, really figured out what his players were capable of and didn't try and, o- and overburden them with tactics that were too complex. Hmm. But the, the, you know, the analytics staff figured out a couple of things. One, that you didn't have to have a ton of possession in order to score goals. You needed to create, like I said before, a small number of high-value opportunities. Mm-hmm. And they also figured out uh, that you could, in some situations, um, you know, use a different formation from what teams had been used to seeing in order to destabilize them. We were at a time where a lot of teams in the league had been using a 4-2-3-1 formation, four defenders at the back, two central midfielders, three attacking midfielders, and one striker at the top. They came back with what had been a more traditional formation for many years, um, either uh, 4-2, or sometimes they would use three central defenders and four in the middle. And and this was, I should say, three in the middle. And this was a bit of a a sort of hawk among the doves when you think about it from a sort of evolutionary standpoint. You know, there there were all these doves in the league that were used to playing other doves, and all of a sudden here comes a hawk with a totally different strategy, and it just eats everybody. So is is it translated into playing, people talk about teams that play direct, were they playing more direct? And is this counter to like the classic Barcelona lots of passes kind of strategy? Am I thinking is it is that an oversimplification? That's right. Yeah, everybody was trying to emulate Barcelona or maybe Arsenal. These other teams that played very stylish soccer with a lot of touches, and these guys came and said, "Well, we don't necessarily have the tools to do that, and moreover, we think that these teams that are trying to play stylish soccer are vulnerable." To an incursion of old school direct soccer. <laughs> can, I, can I simplify this for, for a knucklehead like me who doesn't know much soccer? Are you essentially saying is that the, the, it had become the, the practice to just pass the ball a lot? And because it was Barcelona did that, they were very good at that. They controlled possession, but they didn't take that many shots, or they didn't take many, that many good shots. And that what Leicester City decided to do was, we don't need to hold on to the ball; we just need to get it in position to score. So go right at the right at the goal, and don't pass between each other, and then just try, try to create fewer opportunities. Maybe I mean more, more, more better opportunities, but fewer overall. And then and that particularly works when I guess when you're the underdog. Am I getting any of this right, or is it just totally well, nonsense? Barcelona does create a lot of shots. The problem was the Premier League had 20 teams, and 18 of them were trying to be Barcelona, mm. and most of them can't. So uh, you had all these teams trying to follow this strategy, and they were leaving themselves open to exactly what you said, this very sharp, put the ball in position as quickly as possible, counterattacking style. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting 
situation because you wonder whether soccer is sort of cyclical. You know, it, it, this also happened in, a couple of years ago when Chelsea started to play uh, with uh, 4-3-3 and I, I'm sorry, 3-4-3. So they had three at the back, four in the middle, three at the front, and then lots of other teams started to do this as well. And and then you know, you, you, you they won the championship, and then everybody tried to emulate them, and now somebody else is going to come up with another strategy, and they're right. going to win. Right, right. We're talking to Dan Altman. Dan is the founder of North Yard Analytics, a consultancy focused on soccer. He's been doing analytics work in soccer for years now after an academic career as an economist out of Harvard originally. You can follow Dan on Twitter, by the way, at NYA Sports. At NYA Sports is Dan's Twitter handle. I want to want to follow up and make an analogy to football. Uh, one of the things we noticed about when, oh boy, I just said football and I meant that there's a difference, um, that we noticed with the Patriots, with Belichick was brilliance in some levels to have more than one defense and sort of roll them out and depending on who he's facing and get everybody um, thinking something is different is going to happen. Is there something like that in soccer? I mean, can you notice if they're they're coming up with this particular style and we're going to just now try something else, a 4-3-4 or whatever it is? Are teams that flexible? Do, yeah, are they, it, is that possible? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean a, a, a very simple version of Audie's question is how much do teams change these kind of 4-4-3 four, four, type formations game to game? Well, there's a lot of difference in that uh, because there's a trade-off. One is if you keep playing the same formation, maybe your players will get better at it and more effective, a more oily machine, right? But the other possibility is every team's going to know what, what's coming when, when you go to play them. So we see a bit of both. Uh, if you have a really good team, then you can probably get them to learn two or three formations really well, and you can change in, even in the middle of a game. But... We don't see that many clubs that are capable of that. Sometimes they'd rather do something simpler, like keep the same formation but switch the players from the left to the right. Uh, there are other ways to bring in a little variation. And, and maybe who you play, is that who you who you start versus who you bring in late, that well, kind just, of thing? Yeah, well, just just one of the things we notice about, is it, is it possible for teams to kind of lose a few games early on, particularly if they uh, if, if they have, if, if there's a play, I guess there really isn't a playoff in, in uh, soccer, I don't know how exactly, where there's, there's a next round, I guess you go to, you know, they lose a few games just to get better at a few different strategies. Is that is that something that, that they, do they experiment in the season? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that they would rather do it in preseason, but you often see that that's happening in, in the early part of the season, that they're trying out a couple different formations, especially if they've just incorporated a lot of new players, they may need to do that. Um, you know, Some soccer leagues have a playoff round, some don't, uh, but it's, it's always a relatively short season, uh, you know, 38 games for a 20-team league typically. And so you don't want to experiment too much, but you do have this second opportunity to incorporate players usually in January, so you may have big changes in your squad and then need to experiment a little bit again. Mm-hmm. Dan, Dan, just in the last few minutes here, let's. I, well, re, one, we really appreciate you letting us ask you all these like, like naive questions. We should do this every six months or so. Maybe we'll learn something about soccer eventually. Tell us about the Premier League this season. So Man City was such an overwhelming favorite coming in. And they've taken some unexpected losses. Liverpool's managed to have the lead, but they've squandered some opportunities. So it's all in all quite tight here with about a third of the season. If we take the corner to the last third of the season, even Tottenham is hanging around. Do you? And then Man United, who was dead, you know, halfway through the season, they've been on this roll. Any insight or predictions for how things go down with the Premier League between now and the end of the year? Well, this late in the season, having a lead is usually quite telling in terms of who you expect to to win the trophy. So Liverpool are still in pole position. Um, 
there have been some questions about Manchester City's defending and whether they could sustain uh, some of the results they had early in the season. And some people would say they're regressing a bit right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you've had injuries. And key players, key players get injured and teams perform a little worse. And then when those players come back, you expect the teams to perform a little better again. Something that we might see with Spurs. You know, they've had big injuries. They've had to piece together a midfield out of misfit toys. And <laughs> so, um, you know, there, there are lots of reasons to expect that this is going to get more exciting as we go down the stretch. Um, you know, City's in a position where they could win a lot of trophies this year if they could bring it home. Um, but that also means there's a lot of stress on the squad. And uh, right, so they, they have to play more games essentially because they're they're active in so many different place places in different competitions. Yeah, you know, there's there's the European competition, there are the domestic cup competitions, which are knockout tournaments in addition to the league. Mm-hmm. And it's quite different from an American sport when you have a soccer team that could be involved in four different competitions almost throughout the whole season. It's just crazy. So, Dan, do you see, I'm looking at the top four teams, looking at their points. The thing that's striking to me is the top four teams all have a goals against. They're giving up less than one goal a game. Do you see that as, you know, is that going to be the future of soccer? Like, you know, as you know, the criticisms from the fan point of view is these really low-scoring games. Do you see any rule changes? Do you see anything going forward where maybe analytics helps the offense more than the defense? How do you see that progressing? You know, I would answer that question in the context of MLS here in the U.S. Um, You know, MLS is a league that is extremely concerned with the entertainment value of its product, right? They're trying Mm -hmm. to grow and they want to reach as many people as they can. And one of the things that we've seen recently in MLS is teams which now have a bit more leeway in how much they spend on their squads uh, are spending a lot more on attacking talent and really not that much on defending talent. Mm. And so in terms of the quality of attacking, it's gone way up in the past few years. The quality of defending, not so much. Um, so, you know, a result of that, you may see some more goals or you may see some, some teams that are easily outclassing other teams with their attacking talent. Uh, does that make it a more exciting product? Uh, you'll have to consult the TV ratings, but, but that's where we see the changes happen. In terms of making rule changes, like making the goal bigger or something like that in European soccer, I don't think it's going to happen. They are really hidebound to their history, and mm-hmm. I don't think that we would see anything like that. Mm-hmm. Terrific. All right. Listen, Dan, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for answering so many questions. We uh, wish you the best with your work. We hope to have you back again to talk more soccer down the road. Thanks a lot. I do encourage people to follow me on Twitter at NYA Sports because I'm going to have some really big stuff to show them in a couple of weeks. <laughs> all right. All right. You heard it. Dan Altman at NYA Sports. He is the founder of North Yard Analytics. That's where the NYA comes from. He is a longtime economist before turning his eyes to the world of soccer analytics. All right, guys. That has been three quarters of our show this morning. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. The whole crew is in here this morning. Audie Weiner is in here. Shane Jensen is in here. Eric Bradlow also in here. This is Cade Massey. Some combination of those four guys is here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. You guys can join us, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall great way to reach us we follow all of our guests up there we tweet occasionally about the world of sports and uh you can send questions or your suggestions for the show on twitter at w moneyball just off the phone 
Dan Altman was our soccer guest. He's an expert soccer analyst consulting all over the world on soccer to, into professional organizations. Learned a few things, guys. I'd say I learned a few things. It's also good to keep an eye on the Premier League. It's a tight race. It's going to be interesting in the next next couple of months as that thing winds down. We are rolling into the last segment. By the way, thank you to Danielle Bruno for bringing us up out of the bottom of that hour. She always does. Danielle Bruno on the soundboard. She keeps us in, in, in good places all through the week around here. A um, couple of things I want to click through here real quickly before we get to the over-under segment. One, let's hear more about the Sixers trade. That was, that was big news in the NBA period, but, of course, it's our backyard. Eric, what's your position on this trade? Well, so let me say the good news. Let's always start with the positive. We're yeah. always positive here on Wharton Moneyball. I'm not sure. You're a very positive guy. Definitely, in Eric. So. Eric, you are I the leading person. positivity person. Yeah. I am a positive person. So let me just say the following. Um, our, our, if we look at our starting five, so think about, obviously, there's, whatever, 32 NBA teams. So being a top 40 player in war is a good thing, right? I mean, it would mean you're one of the best players. You know, if you took one player in each team, that would be the top 32. Not yeah. necessarily, but you took the thing of there being 30 to 50. Yeah. So if you took a Embiid, Simmons, Butler, Harris, and Redick, those are, are going to be our starting five. They're all in the top 50 in the NBA in war. Yeah. Now, you say to yourself, that's remarkable. You've got a team where all five of your starters are top 50 in war. Can I quote you at you? There's only one ball in basketball. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> and so that, that's the problem I have, yeah. is that every one of these guys, except for Ben Simmons, I think Ben Simmons would be happy if his stat line in a game Takes were a hit, yeah. six points, 20 assists, and 15 rebounds. But everybody else on this team needs the ball, and they want to score. And... If these are your starters, let me just list quickly who the Sixers bench is, and you guys just tell me over under. I'll go the number that I know. One, yeah, yeah. I'll go over I'm under, under half. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to go over under one point five on every one of these players. Jonah Bolden. Uh-huh. Anybody know him? No. Okay. How about Amir Johnson? No. Okay. Zaire Smith. I can forecast the rest. Okay. Is, you don't need Mike, to Mike Scott, who was part of this trade. I'm That's just saying is the only player you would common. have heard of, probably yeah. Markel Fultz. Because yes, of, yes, absolutely. Yes. And Number he's not playing draft. right yeah, now, right. and he's still injured. And maybe TJ McConnell, because he's been our backup guard yeah, for a couple of years now. Yeah. That's it. The rest of the guys are, you've just not heard of them. So what's going to happen? Like, who's coming off the bench? What's your rotation? And... Can you win with a great starting five? And, but right. and, 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 no bench. I, I guess let me follow that. Like specifically, like come playoff times for those of you who watch basketball more. I mean, coaching and all this type of stuff. You know, you're you're going to be going up against good teams that kind of you know, in the Belichicking way, can presumably take away one of your talents or one one of your starting five or two of your starting five through kind of scheme and strategy. Presumably, a bench. Depth is very important. I mean, there's it's also important well, from in, an injury perspective. But an alternative, but it's arg- also important for kind of a strategy. No, perspective. but an alternative argument to that would be: as long as Embiid, Simmons, Butler, Harrison, Reddick can say to themselves, "You know what? Because of the scheme of the other team, today's not my game. I'm okay if I'm going to be the best player or the leading scorer one game out of five. If they can all buy into that." I just don't think yeah. that they've built a team where if one game J- Jimmy Butler has two points, four points, because he's being double teamed, the next one he has 30, is Jimmy Butler okay with that? No, I don't yeah. think he is. And so if you look at the way the Bulls were constructed, I mean, think of the optimal thing that they did. 
Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan. Scottie Pippen didn't care if he scored in the game. The rest of the people were role players. Think about the Lakers' great teams. I mean, you had Shaq and Kobe. Matter of fact, that led to their friction because who was one and who was one A. Yeah. <clears throat> this is the challenge. If you look at the, if actually, if you look at the Warriors, the Warriors have the best possible combination, which is they have two tremendous, three tremendous players: Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and you can argue from a defensive point of view, Andre Iguodala, yeah. who don't care. They're all about the team. Of course, they Curry can and Durant step in and light can. it up if they have to. But, but Curry and not, Durant, that's not their role. Curry yeah. and Durant, trust me, Curry won't be happy if five straight games go by and he gets six shots. Yeah, but they don't have five guys that need that. So, how is the Butler experiment working out? By the way, and I'm, I'm from a distance, it feels like these guys, the current regime, found themselves kind of awash in draft capital. Correct, and they're just kind of they're a little bit like you know a sailor on a binge. And I mean, are they burning up? The, I mean, they ran Hinky off, but Hinky left them in really good shape. And I feel like they're just kind of burning through. So, it. so you point out a good point about the trade. We got Tobias Harris, which seems great. We got a backup, backup center. This guy Boban Marjanovic, who's like a mountain of a man. They list him at seven four. He's taller. They list him at two ninety. He's bigger. Um, they got this guy, this forward Mike Scott. But here's the other part that people, maybe it's important or not. The Sixers gave up two first round picks and two second yeah. round picks. Now their, like now so their much. pick, you could argue, well, it's the back of the first round. They're a good team. But they also gave up a, a pick, an unprotected pick that they had gotten from the Miami Heat, which is a first round pick. So not only did they give up two reasonable players, Wilson Chandler and Mike Muscala, but they gave up two ones, two twos, and my favorite rookie of the Sixers in the last four or five years, this guy Landry Shamit, who is one of those guys, all defense, but could shoot the three, very athletic player, always seemed to be on the right place at the right time. So actually, I'm not happy also, as you're saying, Cade, not only did they give up two of these dirty work type players, but they gave up two ones and two twos. Mm-hmm. And, the, and by the way, let's be clear, Tobias Harris is signed for five months. He could decide after this season... I don't like being the fourth option on the team. I'm coming from the Clippers where I'm the one option. I don't want to be the sidekick to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and we've made all this trade, and we have him for this year only. Yeah, and I mean, like, somebody who doesn't follow things particularly closely, um, it seems like a very win-now move for the Sixers, and I just don't know kind of... Lee, what, what, do they think they're actually going to win now? I mean, is it? I mean, maybe their objective function is just like, so, hey, the East is kind of weak, so we can take advantage of that. But I mean, they're going to get killed by Golden State in the final, presumably, well, but, right? But, but making the finals might be worse. Something. Yeah. And okay. So Nate, okay. Nate Silver. Yep. Nate Silver tweeted this morning that their model yeah. says that this trade bumps them from a ten percent likelihood of making to eighteen percent to, to, to he's yeah, about ten 20. to about twenty. So basically making double, the finals is making it? the finals. So making coming finals. out of the East essentially. Which is huge actually. That's a big that's, that's a, a big, big difference. It really is. So his numbers likes the trade. He actually says the trade's gonna win win both sides, but I'm not sure how he's valuing it. It's very hard to do that. And the, the problem is is and we were is that additive models in basketball are troubled. But those are the only ones that you you basically can fit. Yeah, and I, I mean, and maybe I just to build on that point, if you had told me also, let's also remember now, the Sixers now have only about thirty games left to figure out 
the right rotation, the way so it's not just yeah. an ad. Like that's a that's a time that's, bound. That's a, that's a so concern. So let's, let's be clear what Audi means by additive model. These these basic models, what they're building up from player value, which is nice because they're able to say, look, just like in baseball, this guy's worth a certain number, and we add him to the roster, and the whole roster is worth that much more now. They just add up the components, and Audi's saying, well, it's probably not an additive model in it's the real not. world. It's not. I don't, yeah. Yeah. Listen, the genius of five thirty eight and eight silver is to really stick with simple models and and push them as far. As you and, can, and they're, I, they're, you can you can you can work with them and they can understand them. But this is where you you know rubber yeah. meets the road. They fail here. And I mean, mm-hmm. I think historically one of the reasons additive models have become such a I mean almost like the default is in part because they are you know the simplest, but also because they kind of work in baseball, which was where well, we kind of started. Let me just give you guys you know? an example yes. for our listeners <laughs> that'll bring this home to Kate's point. Tobias Harris has averaged roughly twenty one points a game. Does everyone here agree? That if Tobias Harris for the next thirty games averages twenty one points a game, the sum of Joel Embiid, Ben <laughs> Simmons, and uh, Jimmy Butler and Jimmy Reddick scoring will go down. Yeah, well, to, well, yeah. there you there go. You Unless they score another twenty points per game, right? <laughs> Which, well, by the way, they're replacing guys who are scoring ten points a game. Yeah. But, but so the and, Sixers aren't going to go plus ten. Someone's going down if Tobias Harris is going to and, score and, twenty. And but and by the way, up, in, a, in a perfect world, those those interactions could be positive as could well. Very you well take be. one of these dirty work guys you were talking about, and you drop them onto a team, and all of a sudden, rather than adding like three point four points a game, the team elevates beyond that because he does all these he does all these kind of. Absolutely, but Adi's point's really important. Tobias Harris is not... If you look at just the point differential, it's plus 10. I will go on record over under right now. The Sixers will not be scoring ten points more a game because no, they have Tobias the Harris. But what's yeah. their? They're they're beating their their opponents on average by about four points. Is that what they? A what little are they, less. Are less than that. If they can go to plus six or plus seven, that would be huge. The, that's that's where mm-hmm. that's would be huge. Yeah. it's not going to be plus ten. Yeah, and I, I just think. And again, I I, I would certainly. I, I'm convinced that they have appreciably changed their sort of, you know, Eastern Conference odds. Yep. It just, this kind of move does sort of say, like, they must really, you know, making that finals, maybe they just, it's all about just getting a coin flip against Golden State, even if it's a poor coin flip. So, um, baseball, I assume still nobody signed. Nobody has signed Machado or Harper. Pitchers and catchers next week? That's right. And we still have all these unsigned free agents yeah. out there. And, Superstar and the guys, unsigned. The big guys. The big guys. It turns out we have a salary cap in baseball now. It turns out. I, turns, I, they're actually following it. Where you know where is good old George Steinbrenner when you need him? <laughs> yeah. Can now, he just throw I mean, some money This is what happens when you have the rich owners actually be smart, too. <laughs> okay, if nothing's going on in baseball, let's go further afield. I understand they play a little golf this weekend. We're kind of you know ramping up the golf season. I believe I saw Masters golf tournament commercials. You on did. TV Pretty soon we're going to have a horse race. So Ricky Fowler <laughs> won this weekend, right? Ricky Fowler won, but the strangest thing happened. I know I've never seen it before. And actually, the announcer was um, Paul Azinger. He said he'd never seen it. Paul Azinger's been around golf a little bit, a major championship winner. So it was on. I'm going to say the 11th or 12th hole. Ricky Fowler has a five shot lead going in the final round. He's just cruising along. He hits the ball. It's a par four. He hits the ball next to the green. It's raining out. His chip shot goes onto the green, skids, runs down the other side of the green, just misses a bunker by two inches and runs into the water. So you say, okay, you know, all right, that happens. He drops his ball, okay, goes up to the green to see what, you know, how to hit his chip shot. He's about 10 feet below the green. The ball stopped. It's about 30 seconds later. The ball starts moving and rolls back into the water. Now, it turns out 
That's a penalty. That's Be- insane. Because, and by the way, they had never seen... I'm going to say, it had been... I'm being sorry. I'm conservative. It was probably two minutes between when he had placed his ball and when the ball... It was stopped. It was... Well, no, why, that's why, the rule. Why Here's is the, a penalty? I'm going to tell you. In golf, the minute the ball is stopped and motionless, the ball is in play. It doesn't matter whether he literally hit the ball in the water. It rolls itself into the water. Now, they can talk about a rule change for that. The minute the ball, the referee came up to him, you could hear it on, they had it in the microphone there. The referee just asked him one question. When you walked up to the green, was the ball stopped? And he said, yes. And then the referee, you could hear him say, it's a penalty. It doesn't matter whether you hit the ball in the so, water or you or the ball just rolled. Yeah, it's yeah. not a. Pen, it's not really a penalty. It's a. It's, a, it's, a, it's water. It's a hazard. It's so a it's, hazard. It's, he didn't do something wrong. It's correct. Just, he didn't okay. get extra penalized for some kind of procedure. He just that does is correct. Is is on the it's hook for that extra ball in the water? Now what's interesting about that is he ended up triple bogeying the hole. He ended up his five shot lead went down to one. He ended up losing the lead oh, wow. and then ended up winning it at the end. <laughs> now, the, the other interesting part <laughs> about this is this tournament, Ricky Fowler, the last two years, he was leading going into the final round and lost both of those years. Oh. So you could imagine the narrative that was going on on TV. Like this is the third straight year Ricky Fowler is going to lead. For coming back on and that. then he ended yeah. up birding two or three of the last holes and won by two strokes. This, this isn't the crazy term out in Phoenix, is it? No, it is. With this with the it, rowdy fans. This is and all the that rowdy stuff? fan waste management open in Phoenix. This what? is the rowdy fan. Right? Yeah. Just one with the big with the big Is that uh, the actual formal yeah. title? Stadium like and where stadiums everywhere, yeah. Yeah, and guys are literally cheering and yeah. booing while the shots are going on. What? Yes, it was that tournament. <laughs> All right, this is waste management. This is Wharton Moneyball. <laughs> the name of, of the firm. Wharton Moneyball. The full crew is in here: Shane Jensen, Andy Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and Cade Massey. You guys can join one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We're rolling into just the last fifteen minutes of the show, and for longtime listeners, you know that when it's not football season, we do a little segment called Over Under. We just started it last off season. I think it was Eric's idea to kind of wrap the show up. I think he, I think you started. It, in response to not having the football, money, the Moneyball matchup. So in the absence of Moneyball matchups, we came up with a little over-under segment. You know, we went months before we started kind of practicing what we preach and keeping score. And so we've heard, we've been heckled in various places, including Twitter, for not, you know, tracking these and reporting how our predictions are doing. Yeah. So we finally got shamed into keeping score. So we've got, you know, we've got Zach back there grading all of our old forecasts, and we're going to bust them out. I think next show we're going to carve out some time, and we're going to review. We're going to review about fifty historical forecasts, and we're going to have a leaderboard among the. Four we of should us. have like a little belt for the person who's at the top of the leaderboard <laughs> that one of us can wear every just, morning. Just, Is that a great that's, idea? That's, like a little that's pretty championship bold. belt of some sort. I, I think a little tchotchke would be more appropriate. A, but. How about a turnover? Uh, a, thing like the like the, the the chain yeah the chain turnover yeah. chain exactly okay Big, no no gaudy. okay I'll, I'll i'll get behind that i'll get behind that okay it's so gotta be something you can wear well, right l- let me <laughs> so we, we uh we'll, we'll we'll this is all just to say guys uh, heckling is good and calling yeah. us out on that issue is very appropriate but we are going to get to it we've actually yeah. got grades and we're going to review them on the show Hopefully next week. But some of them are so long term. Well, that's, that's, that's that one of the reasons. My point. So, yeah. We forgot all about them not, because I'm playing we, a long game. I'm gonna. Be, I'm not gonna be very accurate on these short term <laughs> things, but the long term ones. Game. I'll come back. All right. Well, I'd love to do some today. Okay. So without any further ado, for the first time in 2019, it's Warden Moneyballs over under. 
All right. So traditionally, Eric leads us through this segment. So, Bradlow, what do you got? So I love, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, I love all of these. There's not one here that I don't like, but I was going to be to Adi's point. We're going to be waiting a long time for some of these. So that, That's l- okay. Some of those yeah. is okay. So let's go quickly through them. I want to get through most of them. Yeah. So let's just, we'll go quickly. We, so have, if, we have time, guys. So the first one. Um, if I add up the number of additional championships for Nick Saban at Alabama and Bill Belichick, who's currently with the Patriots, we don't know that he'll end up there forever, um, over under 2.5 more championships combined. Now, just to let one. you know, uh, Nick Saban is 67, Belichick is 66. So who, over under 2.5 more championships combined for Saban and Belichick. I'll go. I'll start with Adi on this one, and then we'll go. Well, let me ask some questions. What it would be a typical retirement age of a coach? Well, good as we one, do know, we know Belichick was the oldest coach to ever win the Super Bowl. We know that we, that, <laughs> yes. da- that data point we were given. But is 67, I mean, how that, many years do we say, is that a lot for a college coach, or is that very old? I would say that the there. older college coaches, the oldest they've been was um, were Bobby Bowden when he was at Florida State, obviously at Joe Paterno at Penn State, coached until their late 70s. But let's just... Bill, Bill Snyder at K-State just, just retired after coaching until about 137. All right. Well, let's let's say the following, Adi. I'll give you... About. No, no, no. You're asking the right question because you're an N times a rate guy. Yeah, all right. Let's say 10 yeah. more years each. Let's just... Okay. Yeah. That could be, oh, right? Oh. So, you don't I, think it's I'm, less no. or more? Less. It's Saban's less. not going to coach for 10 more years. But all right, you don't think he can go? Years. I mean, Joe Paterno re- retired or whatever. <laughs> whatever. All right, let's say five. Retired, more. But was, you go with whatever uh, okay. end you want between actually, five and ten years. Yeah, I'm putting uh, so the two point five is the is the is the is the mark. It's because of Alabama, and I'm I'm predicting Saban gets another eight years, and that's why I'm going to go over. Okay, Shane Jensen. I'm definitely taking the over, and it's not even just because of Saban. Belichick has been, co- you know, he's, you know, been but to like Super nine Bowls. Super Bowls in yeah, like the last yeah, eighteen yeah. years. And I mean, yeah, Brady's not going to be around, and maybe he's not even going to be on the Patriots. But you think has the league shown any sign they fi- figured this dude out? He's going to dominate for another decade. I, I see at least <laughs> wow. three more. You know, by the way, three more Super Bowls about this is the guy, alone. This is the guy who was anxious with the one touchdown lead no. against yeah. the hapless Rams with a minute left in the game. And well, I thought, that's my I own thought you had a crushing Tom Brady. Secure. Now I'm realizing no, I mean, it's Belichick. I, all right, well, okay, no, I mean, let's go to, let's, both, let's go to Kate here. It's oh, both. Over. Two best coaches in the history of the NFL and the NCAA. They've got enough in them to get more than two and a half championships. And I'm going over as well. I'm going over as well. No variance on that forecast. Okay. Uh, let's go to another one that's now in the NFL. So, 0.5 Super Bowl wins next year. Now, I'm going to give you, you get the following four teams. Chiefs, Pats, Saints, and Rams. Wins. So, I'll start with Shane. Wins. 0.5 Super Bowl wins next year. So, in other words, do you, if, yeah, I, I, mean, I take d- the field and you get the Chiefs, Pats, Saints, and Rams. I never like getting that. That seems like too small of a number of teams for like, you know, for basically half. a half of the a probability of winning the Super Bowl. No, it's remember those were that the final four said, teams. Of course, they are the final four teams. No, I understand. Um, ah, what the heck? I'll take the over. I'll take the over. <laughs> right, See, I'm not, right, not going to do analysis. I'm just going to go with my gut. I'm going right, to take the over Kate on Massey. that one. I'm going to go against the gut just for being against the gut. Yeah, because they do, it does seem intuitive. But if you ran those numbers, I think it's a I think it's a reasonably chosen number point five for for those four teams. Um, but I'm going to go against. I'm, I'm going to be as intuitive about it but in the other direction mm-hmm. so, so you're going under yeah. Adi I am echoing Cade I think I haven't done the numbers but I it's hard to believe that four teams get more than 50% of the probability even though they are good ones so I'm going under so let, let me just say I'm going over but let me just say let's let's be clear 
if you believe that these teams had, it would take roughly four times the odds of the average team for these teams to make it, right? Because you want mm-hmm. these four to represent 16 teams, yeah. roughly, to be at 50-50. So do you believe that this team is four? And that's a big, big number. No, it but is. despite that, I'm still going the over. But I, I like your thinking of that. Yep. How many teams do they have to represent, in some sense, to yeah, get that, to 50%? Yeah, that's a better way of thinking about it. I mean, my kind of logic on, on taking the over is just that I do think it's a very high probability I mean, not one, which I think probably would be the correct calculation. But it's a very high probability that the Chiefs and Pats are one of the two teams in the Super Bowl next year. Okay, let me give you what, just to give you a sense, what we had coming into this year. Now, who knows how representative a year it was, but the favorites, if you took the four top favorites, what were those numbers? New England was 10% to win. So uh, Minnesota, you're not, well, well, Minnesota was basically 10%, just under 10%. Those are the two biggest. So with four, you're not going to get... Well, we can do the math. If the biggest better. is yeah. 10%, there's no way the four are getting to 50%. That's that's some good math. Okay. All right, let's, we, let's, we move, on to, the let's, math. let's move on to another one, which is kind of interesting. So Kyler Murray, who we know is has potentially both a baseball and a football career, if we had to pick where he's going to be selected in the draft, over under five and a half. So is he a top five pick, or is he outside the top five? So I'll start with our college football expert, Cade Massey. Well, what I want to do is look at the draft order. Yeah, how many teams at the top need a quarterback? That said, though, Shane, you know, Does, people trade into those spots. Yep. Um, yep. So that may not be as meaningful as you might first think. Um, my instinct is that that's too high. Uh, you know, wait, 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 wait. High is low here. So, what do you mean? That's that's too that's too high, that's too early in the draft. Too early. That's what I thought My, you said. It thought. certainly is possible, and people are excited about him. But there's as much precedent as Mayfield has kind of established. There, Murray is a smaller guy yet, and um, he has a, a bit less of a track record than Mayfield. And there is the baseball thing, and I think all those question marks would would probably be enough to bring him out of the top five. Okay. I'm predicting much closer to the end of the first round, so clearly much higher. Uh, and I don't have any kind of no, either knowledge base or prediction algorithm uh, to, to to fall back on, but it does seem like it's too early to me as well, just kind of based on my gut. So I'm going to take, I guess, the over on this. Yeah, and I'm going to go for the over as well. So no I, variance I, for me. Here, it's yep. mainly because of I think there's going to be the uncertainty thinking. How committed is this guy to football? Mm-hmm. I think that's going to no, be a big. Uh, my my thinking was five nine. And we, we had the conversation with Eric Winston. Probably I mean, five ten, but okay. Uh, it's just just it's that's just an outlier. And professional football quarterbacks. He's he's also a little slighter than yep. the other short or mm-hmm. he's slighter than Mayfield. He's slighter than uh, than Russell Wilson. By the way, the top eight picks next year without trades are the Niners. All right, let's start with the Niners. They Niners. don't need a. Oh, I'm sorry, Cardinals first. So the Cardinals, we could argue whether they need a quarterback. They, they just drafted they one. They should not need a quarterback. But let's say but they don't. Who's two? Niners and then Jets clearly don't. Niners, Niners don't. don't. And, and the Jets don't. So there are three teams with quarterbacks. Yeah. Raiders, really no, I don't think. Bucks. Yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised. Well, the, the Buccaneers is an interesting yeah. one at number five as well. But no, there's no okay, way that they're going to— Number six, gonna... Giants. They need a quarterback. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't take one, though. No, yeah, but they're no, number no, six. What, no, no, no. They might trade the, out. The I think they'll trade I out. I think let's just break it down one step because, Adi, you love breaking it down this way. Do we think Kyler Murray will be the first chosen quarterback? Well, let me just say— let me just That's a good way to think if about it. If the answer is he is— 
you could easily imagine someone trading up ahead of the Giants to get Kyler Murray. So to me, if you told me Kyler Murray was going to be the first quarterback chosen, I'm taking the under yeah. because someone will jump ahead of the Giants to grab him. I yeah. don't think he's going to be consensus number one. I don't think it's one of those. Yeah. No, but it only takes one team to yeah. want to draft him think about, really but high. Also, yeah, five, but okay. I'm going to break it down the opposite way. Are there five other players that people really yeah. are drooling And, and I mean, we, you know, our, you know uns- our, our uncertainty, we've got this base level of uncertainty based on baseball, yes, based on his stature, etc., that he's not. we're not even sure he's kind of at that level. To trade up for a quarterback, I, I mean, you'd need to uh, really give up really, a lot of draft yes. capital to do that. And I think most teams that do that See that you do that for more of a sure thing. That said, I mean, you know, I so try. Back, let's so, let's go so, back a few years. Were the Eagles as sure about Wentz? I think it actually ended up being a good decision by that for them. Yes, but were were the Eagles much more sure about Wentz than any then team could be, be for about Kyler sure. Murray? So, by the way, Mel Kiper's top quarterback is Dwayne Haskins. Most people think Haskins is the top quarterback, and look at his size six three two. He's the Ohio yeah. State quarterback yeah. six three two twenty. Traditional arm, great arm. The, the the mold has not been so broken by Mayfield that they're not going to drool over Haskins yeah. over Murray, in my opinion. Well, then it's definitely called the over. Eric, uh, bring us some baseball. Oh, you want to do, you yeah, do, baseball, do baseball next? Okay. So if we look, one of the things we actually talked about when we were down in Atlanta, we talked to the president of baseball operations for Atlanta, Alex Alexopoulos. Anthopolis. Anthopolis. Anthopolis, thank you. Um, we talked about you age curves. You guys had a great set of interviews down there, by oh, the thank way. You. Sorry to interrupt. I really hey, listened to the party. It was glad, fantastic. Glad you liked it. Good. It was really enjoyable to do as well. Um, if we add up the total contract lengths of Machado and Harper, over or under 13 and a half years. So, for example, they both signed seven-year contracts. That gets us to 14. If one's a 10 and one's a 5, that gets us to 15. Over, under 13 and a half total years. We'll start with Shane. I am going to take the over on this. So I more still than thirteen think and a half. They combined. get longer contracts than like seven each, I guess, which is what we're really talking about. I still think they do. I think it's going to be at a smaller annual value, and I mean, I think it's going to get complicated because there's going to probably be like weird opt out clauses and stuff like that. I still think they do get. They'll probably get those longer contracts, but with kind of like team options or something like that somewhere. In yeah, there. I, I can't see. I cannot see them taking contracts for shorter than that. Yeah. Only, for seven each, simply because. You, I mean, they could go. They have to get through their prime. Yeah. Okay, uh, uh, Cade. Over. I'm, go- I'm, I'm going under. Wow. I'm going under. I think what as we're seeing time and more time and time pass, I think what's going to happen is the power is going to shift in direction. I think you'll see them signing four or five year contracts H- for larger numbers. Historically, haven't guys at their position signed like ten year contracts? Yes. That is correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep, that yep. is correct. That's, Seven would okay. be short. Yeah, last, right. last one, just quickly. Since I'm a big tennis fan, I just want to know your numbers for this. There's three more Grand Slams this year. I'll t- I'll give I'll take Nadal, <laughs> Federer. Here's a way to frame it: Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. Between the three of them, will we'll they win them all? Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. You can have the. Do you field. want to start? You haven't had a chance to start. I'll go ahead first. When is the uh, last time one somebody not named Nadal, Federer, or Djokovic won a Grand Slam? Well, or Andy Murray, presumably, whenever he. Lost Andy Murray would have won one. Um, so he's kind of out. That's now. probably it. Yeah. Andy Murray. Well, in the last ten years, even there's look. It's Del Patro, Chilich, Warinka, 
Wawrinka. And Murray. Wawrinka, but that's that's pretty much, I think, all of them. But it's been probably four years. I'm going to say 2014 yeah. or 15. Okay. I'm taking the over. I'm taking the Dolphiter and Djokovic. I got to go give the them over. All three I'll slams. go with the over on this one, too. Okay. Is uh, anyone taking the I'm field? actually thinking about it only because these guys are becoming old men. And I'm <laughs> just not three old men. Age is that, just a social know, construct, just a man. Social Age is just a social construct. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be bold, and maybe it'll interest me in more tennis throughout the years to take the under. But let me just say well, just one so last thing. One last thing quickly. If there weren't three of them, I would take the under. It just takes one old man to play well in the tournament <laughs> right for on. one of them to win. Yeah, I think that's an easy one. I'm over on that one as well. All right, Adi, what, did you go under? He officially? went under. I did. All right. I officially went under. All right, guys. Well, that's our first official over-under segment of 2019. We've got much more to come in the long, cold winter between now and the first football game in August. I know. Well, we got the draft we can talk about. We do have the draft. We have all kinds of football And the things. combine. We can and the <laughs> combine. All right, guys. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning. Many thanks from the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Audie Wanner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey. Many thanks to Daniel Bruno, sound engineer. Matty Dats, the boss man, running the show. Very much appreciated. He did a heck of a job down in Atlanta as well. Couldn't have done that even remotely without Matt Dats. Many thanks to Dion Simpkins, our associate producer in the back room, pounding the bonbons. Hope it's been a good morning for you back there, Dion. We will be back here next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.